and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be heading over to True Directions to try to get rid of our horrible homosexuality that we've been burdened with. Uh, but also, we're going to be uh, heading over to the cocksucker as well to live our ever gay lives, and also try to sneak away and try to get out of this horrible hellhole. But that's right, everybody. We're going to be covering 1999's But I'm a Cheerleader. Now, I will say right here, right now, uh, you have now entered into the season two of Cult Cinema Circle. So for anybody who's been listening, thank you so much for sticking around and listening to me talk about movies. I really appreciate it. I did take a little bit of a time off for the holiday, uh, so that was really nice to, you know, not have to record for a week and, you know, all that. But now I'm back to it, you know, recharged, refreshed, and ready to talk about all things gay. You know, why not? So yeah, the seasons I'm planning on doing, so they're probably going to be about 24 episodes for a season and so each time we'll get to you know have a little fun it's like a tv show or something so why not but back to but i'm a cheerleader though so this particular film i mean i think i watched this my history with it really is i probably watched it for the first time when i was like maybe 15 or 14 maybe like maybe a little even younger i think i caught it on like the ifc channel or something like that you remember the uh, ifc or like Sundance had a channel where they would show all the indie movies and stuff. And that was definitely where probably I found this movie first. And being a, a little closeted gay boy, of course, I I kind of ate it right up, honestly. I, I It was a movie where, you know, it's about gay things. And it's, you know, kind of dated in a way, I guess, because it was in 1999. But I think it's still a movie that is so important for some folks who watched it at a particular time. Um, it's very much a lesbian story, obviously, because it follows, uh, you know, a girl discovering her own lesbianism and going against it but then ultimately you know going over to the to the dark side of lesbianism you know not really but you know you know what i mean i just think it's such a it's a fun little satirical can't be movie which it's of course supposed to be um but it is kind of dealing and handling on some uh serious shit kind of you know it's making fun of conversion therapy which we all know is a bunch of bullshit anyway it's just interesting to see such an early example of kind of taking the piss out of something like that. But yeah, I definitely think this is a, a cult classic for many reasons. But, you know, as we do normally on the show here, we're going to go into a few figures about the film, you know, some critical response quotes from some folks. We're going to move into a little bit of production history and just the legacy that this movie has kind of had. Um, and then we'll move into a plot summary. So without further ado, let's get on to those figures. But I'm a Cheerleader was released September 12th, 1999 at the Toronto International Film Festival and was released in the United States on July 7th, 2000. This screenplay was written by Brian Wayne Peterson with a story credit by Jamie Babbitt, who also served as director and who was an out lesbian. This movie was produced by Leanna Creel and Andrea Sperling and had an estimated budget of $1.2 million. We're looking at a gross U.S. and Canada box office of about $2,205,627 and a gross worldwide box office of $2,595,216. We're looking at a Rotten Tomatoes score of 42% on the tomato meter and a 74% audience score. We're looking at an IMDb score of 6.7 out of 10 and a Letterbox score of 4.0 out of 5. For our cast of characters, we have Natasha Lyonne as Megan Bloomfield, Clea Duvall as Graham Eaton, Kathy Moriarty as Mary Brown, RuPaul Charles as Mike, Mink Stoll as Nancy Bloomfield, 
Bud Court as Peter Bloomfield, Eddie Cibrian as Rock Brown, Melanie Linsky as Hilary Vandermuller, Wesley Mann as Lloyd Morgan Gordon, Joel Michaeli as Joel Goldberg, Richard Mull as Larry Morgan Gordon, Kit Pardue as Clayton Dunn, Dante Basco as Dolph, Douglas Spain as Andre, Katrina Phillips as Jan, Catherine Town as Sinead Lauren, Brant Willey as Jared, Michelle Williams in a cameo as Kimberly, and Julia Delpy as the lipstick lesbian at the Cocksucker Bar. Some critical response quotes for But I'm a Cheerleader are as follows. We have Barry Paris from Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, who states, Brian Wayne's Peterson script is watered-down John Waters, a grotesque burlesque of a gay chick flick. We then have David Edelstein from Slate, who says, As it happens, I couldn't agree more with the point of view of But I'm a Cheerleader but I couldn't like the movie less. And then we also have Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian, who states, I would have preferred to know more in documentary terms about the actual reality of these terrible camps rather than sit through this heavy-handed and oddly lenient comedy. So before we move into any kind of plot summary for But I'm a Cheerleader, I just wanted to go over some production history, a little bit of background on the film, some of the reception that it got when it came out, and then also just the legacy this film has had as well. So so, But I'm a Cheerleader was Jamie Babbitt's first feature film. She had previously directed two short films, one called Frog Crossing in 1996, and the other one was called Sleeping Beauties, uh, which was in 1999. So, Jamie Babbitt and her girlfriend slash producer, Andrea Sperling at the time, secured financing from a guy by the name of Michael Burns, who was the vice president of all things Prudential Insurance. They showed him the script at a Sundance festival because, you know, that's where rich guys who own insurance companies go apparently anyway but their one sentence pitch was two high school girls fall in love at a reparative therapy camp so michael burns gave an initial budget of about five hundred thousand dollars u.s um which was then increased to one million dollars u.s when the film actually went into production jamie babbitt had this idea because her mother actually ran a halfway house called new directions for young people who had drug and alcohol problems and she had wanted to make a comedy that was talking about rehabilitation and the 12-step program and so after reading an article about a man who had returned from a reparative therapy camp hating himself uh, she decided to combine these two ideas together so with her girlfriend andrea sperling she came up with the idea for a feature film about a cheerleader who had attended uh, reparative therapy pretty much They wanted this main character to be a cheerleader because it is, quote, the pinnacle of the American dream and the American dream of femininity. She really wanted this film to represent the lesbian experience from the femme perspective, which was contrasted by several films of the time that were representative of the butch perspective. So these are movies like Go Fish or The Watermelon Woman or even something kind of maybe even like Bound a little bit because, of course, you have I love Bound. Of course, you have Jennifer Tilly, very femme lady but then you also have Corky who is Gina Gershon and she's very much a little more butch if anything and also very much a lesbian but anyway so she also wanted to satirize both the religious right and the gay community which she does with Mary Brown um, Kathy Moriarty in this movie and then also places like the cocksucker bar and then also like the Morgan Gordon's uh, couple as well So, not feeling qualified to write the script herself, though, she employed the services of a screenwriter and recent graduate of USC School of Cinematic Arts, Brian Wayne Peterson. So, Peterson actually had some experience with reparative therapy when he was working in a 
prison clinic for sex offenders. And he said that he wanted to make a movie that would not only entertain people, but it would also make people get angry and talk about the issues that it raised. So in regards to casting this movie, so Babbitt recruited... Clea Duvall, who had starred in her short film Sleeping Beauties, uh, to play the role of Graham Eaton. And so because of this, uh, and also Clea Duvall had been in, um, by this point, she had been in, you know, The Faculty. She had also probably been in She's All That by this time, too. And she was kind of making a little name for herself. But she was able to meet a lot of the rest of the cast through Duvall, including actresses like Natasha Lyonne, who at this point was known for kind of the American Pie series and Slums of Beverly Hills and, you know, just other things she had been in. And also Melanie Linsky, who I love her in Yellow Jackets so, so much. Um, but also she was in Heavily Creatures with a younger Kate Winslet, um, and has just been a character actress for years. Natasha Leone apparently first saw the script in the back of Clea Duvall's car, and she contacted her agent about it. Um, she had seen and enjoyed Babbitt's short, uh, Sleeping Beauties, and was eager to work with her. And she was not the first choice to play Megan, though. Uh, another actress had wanted to play the part, but eventually turned it down due to her religious beliefs, and also not wanting her family to see her on the poster. Uh, apparently, Rosario Dawson was also considered for Megan, but her executive producer persuaded her that Dawson, uh, who is Hispanic, would not be the right for the all-American character, which, in retrospect, is kind of messed up a little bit, because I like Rosario Dawson. I think she could have done this perfectly well, but... You know, neither here nor there. I would have loved Rosario Dawson's movie. It would have been really fun. Uh, A conscious effort was made to try to cast people of color in this movie in supporting roles uh, to combat what was described as racism at every level of movie making, which is what Jamie Babbitt describes it as. So from the beginning, she intended these characters of Mike, played by literal RuPaul. I also, side note, I love RuPaul with... um, in the Brady Bunch movies. Uh, We're going to cover them. I'm covering them at some point. But I love how he's also in this too. Dolph, who is Dante Basco, who is Asian dude, pretty much. And Andre, to be African-American, Asian, Hispanic, all that. So, you know, yeah, you have RuPaul, who's a black man. You have Dante Basco, who's this like Asian guy. And then you have um, Andre, who is this Hispanic dude. I was one of the boys. And he also considered Arsenio Hall for the role of Mike, which I kind of could see because he, uh, Arsenio Hall, like, especially in the 90s, kind of fit this sort of goofy character a little bit with his show and everything. But apparently Arsenio was uncomfortable playing a gay role. And this is really probably one of the only roles that RuPaul has ever done where they were not in drag because most of the other movies they'd been in, the Brady Bunch movies, and also Tu Wong Fu, they were in drag. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. Set and costume design. So, Jamie Babbitt says that her influences for the look and feel of the movie really included John Waters, which is funny because of one of the quotes that I just read, uh, is that it's a watered-down John Waters. <laughs> David LaChapelle, um, Edward Scissorhands, and also Barbie. I don't know much about David LaChapelle, honestly, to be fair, But, I mean, I can see Barbie, and I could also see Edward Scissorhands, kind of, too. And she wanted the production and costume design to really reflect the themes of the story 
she was going for. The progression from the ordinary world of Megan's home life, where the dominant colors are really muted oranges and browns, and you do see their, like, house. It's very much, like, just this drab-looking place. Um, To this contrived world of True Directions, with intense blues and pinks, uh, it's to really represent the artificiality of heteronormativity. And when you really think about it, you know, you have all these conversations now of like not trying to gender things keeping things gender neutral now because we're a more uh, aware society i guess now but yeah it is really interesting that this movie does make a conscious effort to because it's a satire really have these gender roles obviously satirized but also like these colors are like central to the costumes of this movie and also just the set in general the germaphobic character of mary brown by kathy moriarty represents just the paranoia behind aids and her clean ordered world is filled with like plastic flowers uh fake sky and pvc outfits so again that kind of goes back to just people being really afraid uh, of a certain generation um of aids and catching aids and dying of it and these external shots of the house that they did were done all in palmdale california which is kind of fun In regards to, like, themes and such of this movie, we also see that, you know, with a lot of these themes, they really talk about just sexuality as a whole, gender roles as a whole, and then also social conformity. This author, Chris Holmland, in Contemporary American Independent Film, notes that this feature of a film and calls the costumes gender-tuned. And again, it's really interesting to see that contrast of, like, these bright colors in this, like, horrible reparative therapy camp, you know? There was a little a little bit of uh, strife when it came to rating this movie, because I don't think Jamie Babbitt agreed with the rating at all. She thought this was a fairly tame film, kind of. Um, because initially, when she submitted it to the MPAA, uh, this actually received an NC-17 rating, which, if you don't already know, movies like that, like Showgirls, for example, oh, we'll do it. That got an NC-17, and a lot of these NC-17 ratings were more so because there was, like, gratuitous nudity and things of that nature in a movie. In order to get uh, a commercially viable just R rating for this movie, the uh, Jimmy Babbitt had to uh, remove a two-second shot of Graham's hand sweeping Megan's clothed body, and also a camera pan of Megan's body when she's, like, masturbating. Uh, we'll get to it. And then also a comment made by Melanie Linsky, who says that Megan ate Graham out, which is not in the movie, unfortunately. (laughs) But it's funny because I think there was an article I was reading a little bit. And one of the funny things was that um, there was a shot with Melanie Linsky's character, Hillary, and just to fuck with the MPAA lady because Jamie Babbitt did not like this lady from the MPAA. thought she was a bitch. And so she made this like kind of fun like cut of the movie or a part of it where she had Melanie Linsky have her glasses on because she had glasses for her character. And then there was like this quick cut of her not having her glasses. And she literally put it in there to fuck with this lady, which I thought was really funny. Jamie Babbitt was interviewed by Kirby Dick for his 2006 documentary uh, This Film Is Not Yet Raised 
treated. And the film suggests that, you know, films with homosexual content were treated more stringently than those with only heterosexual content, and that scenes of female sexuality draw harsher criticism from the board than those of male sexuality. And Babbitt stated that she felt discriminated against for making a gay film. So the film was also rated as mature um, in Australia, New Zealand, and 14A in Canada, 12 in Germany, and 15 in the UK. And of course, this movie did go on to be it at TIFF, um, as I stated earlier, and then at Sundance, where it then came out in July in the US. And now this movie has gotten a wonderful little director's cut uh, that was released back in 2020, where you could see it in 4K glory, and then also get a little bit of the, the scenes that they cut out a little bit. I do want to kind of go back to this idea that, like, this film, this film is not yet rated, talks about homosexual content just being treated more stringently than that with, you know, heterosexual content. And also with the idea of scenes of female sexuality are get harsher criticism than that of male sexuality. And that's an interesting point because I, an example I can think of is like, so the movie, cause I, I love Darren Stein, love you. And he made a movie uh, that I've watched. It's fine. Called GBF. It's for gay best friend. It was released in 2013, I believe. And that movie is rated R, but honestly, Darren Stein wanted it to be PG-13. And literally, when you watch the movie and you really look at it, it is a PG-13 movie, pretty much. But because it dealt with just gay boys, um, I guess, in 2013, it still got harsher criticism a little bit uh, in regards to getting rated, which is why it got an R rating, when really, when you look at the movie, it could absolutely have been PG-13. I think a similar argument can also be made a little bit for something like The Craft as well, which again, we'll cover that at some point. But with The Craft, Andrew Fleming in particular he made that movie where he wanted that movie to be a PG-13 movie. And he really did make it a point to make that movie something that was PG-13. And it ended up getting an R rating just because it went fairly dark. And I think that's one of the big reasons. Because when you really look at it, like, it, it could definitely be a PG-13. But I think the fact that it was dealing with witchcraft... And also just, it got kind of really dark, honestly. Like, I think that's what really kind of pushed it over the edge to an R. But I just think that's interesting, that, you know, talking about that and how ratings, all that work. And, you know, I just think it's really interesting. Definitely reception of this movie. Uh, I think the reason it's a cult classic is because this bombed when it came out. <laughs> People did not like it at all. Uh, I mean, they just were saying pretty much like... This is shallow, um, and it's superficial, and all that kind of stuff. I think critics just hated that movie. But I will say it does seem like a lot of gay media out there obviously could understand, hey, this movie was made with gays in mind, obviously, lesbians in mind especially, but I think it did end up finding its audience for that reason, you know? And even though, yeah, you could say, like, some of these characters are stereotypical or some of them are kind of contrived, but honestly, when it comes down to it, I do think that this movie has a certain place in people's hearts, especially for those uh, young gay people, men, women, whatever, uh, who grew up with it and who enjoy it and love it, you know? Uh, and it's very pretty to look at, so why not? <laughs> I think the legacy also that this movie has, I mean, I think the legacy that this movie has is also just one to definitely note. I mean, obviously, it is just beloved by 
a fair amount of the gay community, you know, and who people who really like it. And you have like, it's funny because you have like Clea Duvall, who is a lesbian extraordinaire who wasn't out by this time, uh, is in this movie. Uh, Natasha Leone, who has played a lesbian now uh, again, uh, in orange, the new black and all that. And it's just a wonderful, iconic person, but you know, uh, it's fun that, you know, you have this movie that has such a legacy with the queer audiences. A fun fact is um, a musical group by the name of Muna with um, a person by the name of Phoebe Bridgers. I believe she is a like musician. She has her little band. They have this music video for a, a song called Silk Chiffon, and it literally pays homage to But I'm a Cheerleader, where they go to like this camp and they're all together, and they has like little scenes in the mo- from the movie. It's really cute. I was actually watching it like a couple days ago, and I thought it was like super duper cute. Apparently, there was also a musical that went up as well. Uh, this musical uh, first was staged back in 2005. Um, there was a little something going on there, and then also it was performed in 2019 over in London, and also a little bit as well in 2022 even. So it's kind of fun that they made a little musical and the musical was made of this movie and and again i think the legacy that this movie has i think i already said it but like it's just something where it was a film where at this time you weren't having a ton of gay people making movies like this you know what i mean um like it just wasn't happening a ton uh, especially that deal with queer themes so i do definitely think that really honestly were funny there's definitely the argument that can be made that like you know, this movie's not always that, that not exactly that funny, but I do think like what Jamie Babbitt was able to do, I think was just be able to poke fun at exactly what she wanted to. She wanted to poke fun at just the gay community in general with how ridiculous we are, but then also make light of something that isn't very light, obviously, but did it in a way where, you know, it's not diminishing the horror that is reparative therapy, right? Conversion therapy, but more so just taking the piss out of it and really just poking fun at the idea of it. Uh, because overall, just, <laughs> you know, if if uh, you didn't already gather my thoughts about it, I mean, conversion therapy is just a bunch of bullshit. And it really does a lot more harm than good, obviously, uh, because you can't change who you are. Uh, in that regard. Yeah, I just think this is a a great movie that, you know, if you haven't seen before, um, I think you should definitely watch at least once uh, to just get the understanding that, like, hey, this is what we had back in the day. And uh, it's nice to see that, though. But without further ado, we've went over some production history. We went over some of the legacy of this movie and just how it came to be. But now we're going to move into our plot summary of but I'm a cheerleader. So we begin our film with our Lionsgate opening, and then also we go into the actual opening of the movie, where we hear this beautiful song uh, called Chick Habit by April March. It's a really fun song, actually, and it was actually uh, a French song that they did in English as well. It's like an old song, but this is a cover of it. And we meet our main character after this intro we meet Megan Bloomfield played by Natasha Leone. she is with her cheerleading squad and just cheering as you do and so we uh, they're just saying Fremont power Fremont pride be aggressive drive 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 um, go Fremont and so then we meet one of her fellow 
cheerleaders, uh, Kimberly, played by Michelle Williams, right off of Dawson's Creek at this point. So that was a big cameo to get. Anyway, so she's talking about how, like, be sure to pick your uniforms up from the dry cleaners because, you know, the bus for the Rangers game is going to be leaving at 730 the next morning. So you got to make sure you have that all done. And then they're all like, oh, God. But, you know, we get like four dozen donuts, though, because they're being like uh, donated by the local donut shop. And so uh, and we hear Megan's just say, we're going to kill the Rangers in her like New York ass accent, which is just beautiful and wonderful. We then are introduced to Jared uh, in another scene where her and Jared are walking away from their football practice that he was at. Uh, Jared is played by Brant Wiley or Willie, and he is her boyfriend. And they're talking about, you know, I can't believe you're leaving. Be like, oh, we're just going a couple of hours like ahead of each other like whatever and so then he is going to be driving her home i guess so we then get to a scene where they are in his car just making out just like sloppily making out just like oh you know and all this and i guess she's not into it like she's totally zoned out and she's just thinking in her head and we see this of different cheerleaders on her team uh and they're you know like their bodies and their boobs and their breasts and, you know obviously nothing like explicit but still you see her thinking about this because that's what kind of gets her you know interested but anyway so then uh we move from that scene over to uh dinner at the bloomfields which is uh with her mom uh nancy bloomfield played by mink stole and peter bloomfield played by bud court uh who's her dad and they're having um dinner together in this like drab ass house and of course it's like white people food and you know no seasoning or anything but anyway they are saying grace in this and they're talking about you know um her dad in particular like they're doing just regular grace but then also like kind of targeted to uh to megan is like and he's looking at her uh to say please help us to obey the rules in life you set for us um and it's just like targeted towards her and, and of course like megan's just like what the hell like what is he talking about it's I think it is funny, the casting of these parents, because, you know, Mink Stole herself is a dreamlander from John Waters' camp. He's She's been in pretty much every one of his movies and is very much a subversive, you know, actress and has done, you know, everything from you know, being Desperate Living and, you know, then was also in just other his movies and just crazy. And then also Bud Court, if you don't already know, Bud Court is Harold from Harold and Maud. Uh, Harold and Maud is a movie from the 70s where Harold is this young man who's like obsessed with suicide and like uh, death and stuff, I guess. Anyway, but he gets in a relationship and falls in love with this like 70 something year old woman played by Ruth Gordon, the neighbor from Rosemary's Baby, uh, the old lady. Anyway, but uh, and he she teaches her, her him about life and just how to take life for what it is and all this. And I don't know. It's just it's a very cult movie and it's very that I've never really seen it. But anyway, it is funny how they cast this. And so, you know, obviously they cast it for a reason the way that they did. Uh, after dinner with the Bloomfields, we see that Megan is in her bed reading her Bible, of course, and has her hair up in a net because, of course, she would. And so then you see next morning she's off to school. Uh, her parents are in the kitchen, you know, and she's like, oh, I'm leaving. You know, I'm going to, you know, I'm on my way to school. And you see her mom and dad kind of just 
commiserating together, like asking, oh, are we ready? Like, you know, are you ready? I hope we're doing the right thing. And you're just like, okay, what the hell's going on? You then see Megan at school with her friends. And, you know, it's just like, she's totally not in on what's going on or what's about to happen. She then comes up to her locker uh, where her, you know, boyfriend and her friend are, uh, boyfriend and, you know, Michelle Williams is there. And again, it's like, nobody knows except for her so she doesn't know what's going to go on everyone else knows what's going to happen with her and we see inside of her locker we just see like that she has like girls like on her locker um and she even asked like her friend she asked kimberly she's like you know do you think it's fun when you kiss like that you know i don't think it's that fun maybe he's just not doing it right Anyway, so we then get back to the Bloomfield house where we see that, you know, um, in the meantime, like, Megan's getting driven home by Jared, just, like, comically slow, uh, which is crazy. Uh, In the meantime, uh, while a van for a place called True Directions is pulling up to her house as well, and you see this gentleman in a uh, straight-is-great shirt just, like, run out. I also love how pink the van is, too. Like, that's another thing that's just really fun. But we do see this man uh, who is, you know, meeting with the Bloomfields. Uh, He's like, you know... Well, I'm glad we, you know, got here in time. And so this gentleman, Mike, is played by RuPaul, drag queen extraordinaire. And, uh, of course, this is done in a way where, like, obviously, like, RuPaul had been in, like, Tu Wong Fu. She had been in both Pretty Bunch movies, um, playing the guidance counselor, Miss Cummings, which I love those movies. But anyway, so we then see everybody at Megan's house while she's, like, coming in with her boyfriend and all this, and she comes into the the room, uh, her living room, and she sees everyone there, so her parents and her friends and all this stuff, and they're just, she's just wondering, okay, what the hell's going on? Like, did someone die? Um, and so she's introduced to Mike, who is from this place called True Directions, and he introduces himself to her uh, to talk about why he's there, but she's just like, I don't know what's what the hell's going on pretty much. And so little by little, we find out why everyone's there and everyone pretty much is saying that, you know, she is a lesbian. This is, you know, why we're here be like, okay. Like some of the reasons that they bring up is like, she's tried to like have her family try tofu. Uh, she has a Melissa Etheridge poster in her, you know, uh, room um she doesn't like to kiss her boyfriend and her friends just are like it's true insinuating that obviously they probably all made out with him before but anyway so uh this is also where we have the iconic line of you know i myself megan was once a gay but now i'm an ex-gay megan and so it's just like so silly and we learn about where true directions is and you know what that is exactly um And again, Megan's just like, I don't know what you're even talking about. Like, I'm not doing this. Like, I'm not going to do any of this. But of course, you know, she doesn't get really a say in it because she's still a minor, technically. She's 17, uh, supposedly. And so uh, she is driven to True Directions by her parents. Um, I just think it's such an interesting contrast to how Megan's life is generally um just kind of this drab you know kind of straight looking place right and then she sees 
and it's interesting with that you also then see true directions which is just so gendered in a way right like it and that just shows the production design of this movie and the costume design of this movie it's very much just like the house of true directions is so colorful obviously with pink and blue and everything but it's also structured in a weird way it's structured kind of like a dollhouse in a way which comes back to what i was saying earlier about you know the movie and the set and costume design and stuff that this movie really looks it's showing that true directions is this kind of weird playhouse it's this weird dollhouse that's just showing like how much of a game just the performance of heteronormativity is and all of that kind of stuff i just think it's so interesting talking about that and and kind of thinking about that we then get introduced to the uh we then get introduced to the manager or the leader of this uh true directions group mary brown played by kathy moriarty oscar nominee and we meet her son rock who's played by eddie cibrian mr leanne rhymes and so we get introduced to them. Rock takes her suitcase up uh, and pretty much her parents give her over to these people to help cure her of this uh, this horrible, horrible lesbianism she has somehow, um, you know, just had happened to her. <laughs> anyway, so her parents leave. She goes to this place. Um, and pretty much she, the first step of the movie that we get is the admitting you're a homosexual. We then find out that a lot of the other people in this camp have just come there and to admit that, you know, you are a homosexual, right? You see these Kathy Moriarty marry herself, you know, she is just like playing this in a way. I just think it's really fun. Um, like when she's talking about like, you know, so when you see a woman, in a tight skirt with her legs. You know, it's just the way her delivery is, is just really, really fun. We then get introduced to one of uh, the other campers, uh, Hilary Vandermuller, played by Melanie Linsky, wonderful actress extraordinaire. Hilary is tasked with taking Megan under her wing. Um, so we really see that because um, then we're given a scene where it's from Megan's point of view where it's just like, she's following Megan or no, she's following Hillary and Hillary's just kind of talking to her um, about what to expect at true directions and all this kind of stuff. And then she leads her to this uh, just sinkingly pink room <laughs> that the girls all sleep in apparently. Um, and this is where we're introduced to Graham Eaton played by Clea Duvall. We see that she is kind of a uh, rebel in this particular place uh, and all of that. <laughs> I also think one of the fun things is that until she admits she's a homosexual, she has to wear this like hospital gown, which I thought was really weird. Um, but then it's everyone. She is being shown this chart uh, by Hillary of like the step one of like, we all admitted that we're a homosexual and you know, we then have that, but we're then we're introduced to all the other campers here as well. In order, we see, uh, all the other campers who we meet, Jan first, who's played by Katrina Phillips, who is just a very butch lesbian type person. 
who I think is supposed to be a trans man kind of in the story. We're then introduced to Sinead played by Katrina town. Um, we then meet Joel who's played by Joel Michaeli, who's a gay boy. Um, we are then introduced to, uh, I believe we're also then introduced to Graham cause we already met her. We then are introduced to Andre who is played Douglas Spann. We're introduced to Dolph played by Dante Bosco. Uh, and then we're, introduced to Clayton Dunn, played by Kit Pardue. This is just our campers that we have. Little funs of all of these people. So Catherine Town, if you don't know, uh, fun fact about her, she actually was in a movie with Clayton Duvall already. Uh, she is the girl, one of the girls from She's All That, because she was in that with Clea Duvall, where she played her friend. And they're the ones who are like in art class with um, Lainey, uh, Rachel Lee Cook, and they uh, pretty much tell her to kill herself. So they're not very nice in that movie. She's also, if you are a David Lynch fan, she is uh, Cynthia, the assistant to Justin Thoreau in Mulholland Drive. So that's kind of fun. Dante Bosco, he actually is Prince Zuko from Avatar Last Airbender, and he's also American Dragon Jake Long. He's the Jake Long character which is fun. And then Kit Pardue, um, he's, he's done some kind of problematic things, I think, uh, apparently from what I heard, but he is actually the next door neighbor. I know him as the next door neighbor in the movie 13 with Evan Rachel Wood. So that's kind of fun. And Joel Michaeli, he is a character actor dude, and he is actually, he was in Sabrina the Teenage Witch for a couple episodes, but he is also on uh, the movie Can't Hardly Wait. He plays one of Charlie Cosmo's like nerd friends. So that's kind of fun. But we're introduced to our cast of folks at True Directions. And so this is the scene pretty much where we find out that, well, this is where Megan just finally comes and says, like, I'm not a pervert, you know, I get good grades, I go to church, I'm a cheerleader. And all of this, uh, because this is her talking about all this. But then she finally comes to the realization that she herself is a homosexual. And she finally says, yeah, I'm a homosexual. I'm a hobo. You know, and then she just, I love this scene because it is just so out there and like so over the top, uh, especially near the end where she really just like her eyes cross and she just finally admits to herself who she is and all of this. And then she gets to like get her new clothes and everything like that. And then I love like how she uh, then is just like, oh God, oh no, they're right, they're right. You know, it's just like so over the top and crazy. And I think it's exactly, I think, how Jamie Babbitt wanted it, honestly. So when it seems like. So I just like how she's like, they were right. They were all right. So then, you know, she gets to finally get her check mark of like, all right, cool. This is great. We then see Megan uh, having her lunch at. Uh, at night or a dinner, I guess. Uh, and she goes and sits, uh, not with Graham, although Graham kind of talks to her. Everyone else is sitting together and all that. And they're all just sitting together and like saying, I can't wait to be straight. <laughs> just like all together. Uh, I think all these actors like are actually pretty good for what they do and what they are. Well, which is really great. We then get our scene with, uh, Mary and rock. Um, <laughs> where i mean we don't find this out because this uh for me at least i 
I'm not watching the director's cut because I don't have access to it. But you can find the director's cut of this movie where there are a couple different scenes that are not in the regular cut of the movie. Uh, one of them, I think, is where there's a video shown in the beginning uh, when this is all happening of like uh, somebody who was saved, a person who was saved from being a lesbian. Um, but we have our scene with Mary and Rock and we get this idea that Rock, throughout the whole movie, is just undercover gay. And that's kind of one of the reasons that Mary has this True Directions place. Uh, I think we also find out, maybe not in this cut, but maybe in the director's cut, you also find out that uh, her husband actually left her for another man. So I think we also find that out um, within the story somewhere. Um, so that's one of the reasons she also started this as well. We then see the girl's bunk, if you will, and we see that somebody is like buzzing and zapping themselves uh, in their bed. And it like piques the interest of Megan because she's figuring out what the hell is going on. She finds Sinead in her bed uh, who is doing this. I believe they call it something like they call it AV, which is pretty much I believe it is uh, aversion therapy uh, where if you think of thoughts that are not heterosexual you shock yourself so that you know it's not good um so this is like herself shocking herself uh because she's in love with clea duvall's character uh with graham and anyway so you have uh we then see that megan has a, like a phone call she has like a phone call from her parents who are just checking in with her and all that um we then have the second step, which is rediscovering um, your gender identity, which is what they're doing. I also love how in the um, scene with, so it's like a split diopter shot where you have like Megan in the foreground on the phone. And then we have Mary in the background with her um, in her bed, just playing a guitar. I'm just like, what is this movie? But anyway, reclaiming your rediscovering your gender identity. Um, so this is like, uh, a montage of things like the girls who are like vacuuming because of course you know uh it's not very manly to like try to keep a clean house at all uh and then the men are doing stuff like uh chopping wood for whatever reason and also working on a car uh but i do love the gay boy parts because it's just like really funny because i'm just like why do y'all have to chop wood and like touch your junk and like all this kind of stuff. I mean, I don't exactly know. So you just see that kind of throughout, honestly. And it's just like different montages going on uh, with this in particular. We then get to another part of this movie that I think people definitely note, uh, which is called Your Root and Finding Your Root. Um, so each one of these, because it's explained to Megan of what it is. So it's pretty much that like, it's this thing that really was kind of your spark to becoming a homosexual, I guess. Um, and each person has like a different one uh, with whatever, you know, their whole kind of thing is. But we do have that conversation of just exactly what that is. But nobody seems to know. Well, at least Megan doesn't seem to know what her root is. And so that's a conversation that you have for later on, if anything. We then see later on in the day, like, um, or at night, we see that um, they've paired each of the people off, um, and they're all just, like, together. And 
I believe it's like Graham and uh, Megan are are put together, and they're just like showing these different um, cards to one another, um, and it's just like really silly and funny to me. Um, where I'm just like, you know, a woman, mother, you know, it's like a mother. Women have roles. Maybe when you start learning that, you'll stop objectifying them. Anyway, so it's just like really funny and silly, but you get to start to see kind of like you know, that Graham in particular and Megan are starting to have some kind of a fun little relationship going on with each other, which is always kind of fun. And again, back to a montage of like the boys who are playing sports, but they're distracted by Rock's character who, who wouldn't be. We then also see uh, the girls together, like changing a diaper because that's what women do. You know, they just all have babies apparently even for the ones who even can't have babies. Like, it's just a part of it. So we have that, and then, of course, you know, um, we have that iconic scene where, like, um, Mary gets uh, squirted in the face by the baby, which is just, like, really fun. Our third step of the movie is then family therapy, which this scene is pretty much where uh, all the family members come together. So all the families come together for family therapy, which is crazy because however many people there are, you're like, oh my God, like, why are they all in therapy together? That sounds like an absolute nightmare. But anyway, so this is where we kind of get the scene of, uh, or this is where we get the scene where we learn about Graham's parents and kind of what happened with that and how just overbearing they are uh, in general. They, they're well off and she comes from like a rich background, I guess. But Graham's father even like just walks out. Well, he's just like, you know, oh, well, I'm not just sitting around here with some faggot. You know what I mean? Uh, because one of the other one of the guys is like, you know, opening up about whatever the fuck he's opening up about. And anyway, so that's happening. But like, you know, uh, you see that Graham's home life isn't maybe the best. But again, she's privileged and is rich, pretty much. She gets to have that at least. But obviously she's aware of like okay well i'm not very happy with what my life is really but you know i get to come here or i did come here you know for the reason i i did which we'll find out later you then also have the scene where i think this is where we discover megan's root because she does share that there was a period of time in i believe a nine month period where megan's father was unemployed and her mom had to like pick up the slack and it puts in mary's head of like oh you know okay like the reason you are a lesbian is because you never learned to actually respect your father um and you saw your mother having to, like, you know, emasculate your dad, pretty much. And that's your root. That's why. And even, like, Megan's just like, wait, no, what are you talking about? Like, that's not it. Um, but, you know, because uh, Mary is who she is, she's just like, yep, no, that's how, that's exactly what it is. And, and it's showing these things of, like, you know, oh, this is why somebody becomes gay. Because of their, like, family situation. And this is why. Um, and I think that's just such the stupidest thing ever in the world. You know, you just because of your own family situation doesn't really dictate exactly why uh, you end up, you know, enjoying who you enjoy sexually and who you end up falling in love with kind of a thing. It has nothing to do with it. But uh, again, it's one of those things, especially with queer folks, sometimes you get from the right, you know, oh, this person must have had this happen to them. This is why they became gay. And it's like, well, no, it's not that at all. But anyway, 
whatever you want to believe. We then see, I believe, Andre and Hillary. They're like sitting out in the front of the the house, and they get a a piece of. Uh, they get like a paper airplane that's like flown at them apparently and we see what it is it's like this little flyer uh but of course like andre's not showing hillary it he's just like oh no it's nothing it's just trash um and then we see them sitting together but we also see uh graham and megan sitting together as well while graham is smoking and like megan is trying to think up like a cheer or something she does this little thing where like she's getting stuck on something and she's like two four six eight god is good god is straight uh which is what uh graham gives and she's like hey that's actually good um and so they're having this whole conversation of like you know hey megan you know this is like a bunch of bullshit right like it's the stuff doesn't work or anything you can't change who you are you just have to be better about not getting caught and then Megan's like, well, why are you here then? And, you know, Graham's all like, well, I got caught. You know, I got caught with a friend of mine and we got caught and I got sent here pretty much. Because in the scene beforehand at Family Therapy, we get this idea thing of that, again, she comes from a well-off position, right? And so her parents are going to cut her off pretty much financially if she doesn't continue doing this shit and continue doing this, you know, conversion therapy stuff. The girls are all getting ready for bed as you do. And they're all going to bed. And then Megan's just believing and thinking about Graham. We see like a literal dream. She's kind of having where she and Graham are kissing. Um, so obviously she can't really stop these feelings. Um, it's like that one song from the eighties. I can't fight this feeling anymore. Um, Whoever sings that, I think it was Journey or something. But anyway, so you have this kind of going on. So then you see that, oh God, you have, of course, everyone gets a little shocker of theirs because they have to, you know, they have to like shock themselves when they think unpure thoughts. But anyway, so like you see that Megan to kind of get rid of her sexual urges, um, she is, uh, gone down to like Mary's office pretty much in that area and she's just like masturbating in there but then while she is you know uh, trying to get her rocks off and everything while she's also like praying a little bit she sees that there are two guys in there just making out and we see that it's Dolph and Clayton and of course like <laughs> and of course like Megan's just like oh god oh no ew it's just really funny. Um, and of course it wakes Mike up. Um, and so he comes running out and then everyone, you know, kind of gets in trouble. Megan doesn't really get in trouble, but the two boys get in trouble, which is like really, really sad and not great. We then see all the rest of the campers just, you know, huddled outside of the like uh, office area, you know, where they're listening about what's going on exactly. And we see that. <laughs> Because it's now Mary's got woke up, so somebody has to start talking about something. We then see that I believe it is Dolph who kind of comes clean about what's gone on. And so then Clayton, she, Mary says something about how like he's in the doghouse and then literally takes him to a doghouse, which is like really funny to me. Uh, and just locks him in there for like a week, apparently. But then the next morning, we see everyone's eating together, and then Dolph actually is on his way out. He's been kicked out, pretty much, which is just sad. 
I also like the little, um, <laughs> I like some of the interactions that they have at the table or whatever. Cause of course they're all talking about like, you know, Oh God, da 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 or Oh God, da da da. <laughs> Sinead says something about like, if that little twink had narked on me, heads would have rolled. And then I love how Graham is like, what are you going to do? Zap her to death. So I just thought it was like kind of really funny. We then have the next step, the second, it's like the second to final step, which is demystifying the opposite sex, which is pretty much like, you know, they are coming to the idea of like, oh, how do you demystify the opposite sex? So like they have this like little PowerPoint presentation, little slideshow that like Mary's showing them about something. Uh, And this is the scene where Graham and Megan, uh, Graham actually like touches her which is like really nice. And you're just like, Oh, it's like super cute. And again, it's them just spending a lot of time with one another. You have that little montage of them just kind of like getting together a little bit, you know, um, or just finding, you know, that they are flirting with one another and, you know, all of this. And then you see that the girls and some of the guys are deciding, okay, so it's Sinead, Jan and Graham and then I think it's them and, like, one of the dudes, I think, um, they go are going out pretty much. They're sneaking out because, uh, of course, Hillary wouldn't. And uh, they're all sneaking out to go to a gay bar, except Clayton because he's in the doghouse. But everybody else pretty much is, like, coming along and they're going to, you know... Um, Go to this. Go to this bar. This is where we're introduced to the uh, Morgan Gordons. We have Larry Morgan Gordon, and then we have um, yeah Larry Morgan Gordon, who is played by Richard Mull, and Lloyd Morgan Gordon, who's played by Wesley Mann. Um, so they are these gentlemen are ex people from True Directions uh, who are now kind of these guerrilla gays, if you will, who are giving a chance to these people at New Directions to kind of discover for themselves what they think about, you know, being a homosexual. They're giving them this chance, and they're the ones who also sent, like, the weird paper airplane or whatever. Um, But anyway, so, like, they're giving these people a chance to kind of experience what it's like to, you know, have this gay lifestyle going on. Uh, So they take them to this bar called The Cocksucker, which is just very on the nose. Uh, It has, like, a chicken, a big chicken in the front of it, and just has, like, this, like, rainbow-ass, like, sign, this is The Cocksucker, which I thought was fun. Um, So it's the girls and the guys, you know, they're going in here, uh, enjoying themselves. We see that there's a lesbian who wants to dance... Megan, played by Julia Delpy, and then, so they're dancing together, and then Graham is dancing with Sinead, even though Sinead doesn't, Sinead really likes Graham, but Graham doesn't like her like that, and you see, like, Sinead touching um, Graham's ass, for example, on the dance floor, and I will also mention as well that, like, the song that um, they're going to, like, dance to on the, like, the dance floor or whatever is absolutely not appropriate to dance to. It's, like, this, not at all. Um, I don't know why they're exactly dancing. It's not a slow song either, so, like, I don't know why they're exactly, like, slow dancing to it, because it's not appropriate at all. But pretty much when Megan sees Sinead 
touching Graham. Uh, she gets pissed off and goes out the door uh, to the back of the, the cocksucker and in like the alley, I guess. And she's just pissed about it. And so then Graham comes out and she's all like, well, you know, just so you know, like, I don't like Sinead like that. Like, you know, uh, but why, why do you care? Like, you know, you're not anything to me, right? Like, you're just a friend. Like, you're not, why do you care? I guess. But then we get the wonderful scene of them kissing finally, because there's been the sexual tension there, if anything. And anyway, so we see that they finally get to do this and they finally get to be, you know, they finally get to express their love for each other, um, which we were already kind of having anyway. And this is where Megan's conflicted because she says, I'm not supposed to like you. I'm not supposed to like you, but I just want to do that again. Um, and it's kind of that forbidden fruit, I guess, if you will. Um, and then there's also a point where Sinead is in the club while uh, Andre's just on the dance floor, like getting it, which is like wonderful and great. And she goes and is about to go into the back end of the the cocksucker she sees uh megan and graham on the you know the back area and she's just like uh you know she just kind of stares daggers at them which i don't think she actually she doesn't see them exactly but we then see that Sinead is kind of like the the antagonist if you will um and that'll come up later in the story but you see them all coming back uh to true direction so Andre has to go back to the boys' room, and then the girls all have to go back into their, like, room as well, um, and then Mary has to then come in, and of course, like, okay, like, nobody's here, no, you know, everyone's here, everyone's back here, all right, I guess there's nothing to worry about, nothing to think about, right? So then the next morning, and then you also have, um, in this same scene, uh, you just have Sinead just, like, using her her shocker as, like, a flashlight where she's just looking at Megan and just, like, staring daggers at her, like, why are you touching my woman, bitch? It's just, just so weird. We then have a scene where Mike is doing some kind of therapy with all the, the campers, I guess, and we then come to this realization, or we come to this thing where Jan uh, is talking about you know everyone seems to think I'm like this huge lesbian or like this huge dyke right um, but maybe I just am like maybe I'm not a lesbian at all I've always just been like she's coming to the realization that this is not for her because she herself is not a lesbian she's actually and I was saying earlier I think she uh, this character in particular is coded as obviously like generally a, a butch lesbian type person but also i believe as well could be coded as a trans character which is interesting because then i'm wondering about pronouns and things like that i guess generally you could say like you know if we're looking at as like a butch lesbian you could kind of just say they or still she i guess um, but if we also go on the idea that they're a trans man of course it would be a he but you know of course they're using she as you know their pronouns so uh that they are kind of giving to them so we never quite get that but then we see uh mary uh that's kind of just like not a whole lot tied up uh except that she just quits but then we see mary cleaning up uh in the room of the girls and she finds a matchbook from the cocksucker as you do um, and she is like pissed at the she's pissed at the the campers because somebody is going to, you know, come forward about this and, and all of that. She sees like that Graham 
doesn't, I don't think, exactly confess to, like, oh, you know, those aren't my matches, even though they were found under my mat, you know, my mattress and they were found under my bed. But, you know, Graham then tells Mary when she's confronted to be like, hey, I didn't sneak out and I don't know who snuck out. But, you know, I do just want to say that, like, you know, I did realize something about myself, though, is that I have a big crush on Joel. And the reason that she's doing this is because of the fact of, like, she's trying to get Mary off of her back at this point, which makes sense. And so it's just kind of deflecting, if anything, which is just what you have to do in this kind of situation at this point to kind of keep everything, you know, going on going forward. We then see, I think each one of the, I believe there are meetings going on with all the parents, it seems like. And so in this scene, we get Mr. and Mrs. Bloomfield coming in with Mary um, and having this meeting with, um, they're having this meeting with, you know, with Megan. And this is where she finds out, like, you know, that her parents pretty much say, you know, well, if you don't continue this, like, or if you know you're not doing this program anymore, you won't be able to come home. We can't allow you to live like that under our roof. And so this then just gives Megan the kind of understanding of like, okay, well, all right, well, then you don't have anything to worry about. Don't worry. I will, you know, you have nothing to worry about. You know, I will. I've been missing Jared. I've been missing my boyfriend. Can't wait to see him again. It's going to be great. And, you know, but it's this point you see that, like, you see this kind of, like, heartbreak for for Megan because she just kind of realizes that, like, I think she already kind of maybe knew a little bit of it when they sent her to this place. But, like, it's the realization and I guess the reality of the fact that, like, wow, like, if I really don't shape up and I don't become straight, I guess I can't go back home, which I mean, only to get so deep, I guess, you know, but that's a real thing for people who are in the middle of coming out or kind of coming to their own realizations of their their sexuality. And I think Natasha Leone does a good job at um, being able to to act this because in this particular scene, you see just the heartbreak in her eyes, but she does it in a very subtle way, I think. And I just really like that. I think she's such a really good actress, honestly. Anyway, but back to what I was saying though, it was just like, but that's a real thing for people is that, you know, you know how your family will react or you then find out how your family will react to something like this. And you then have to either hide it, which is what a lot of people do, or, if you do come out and live your authentic self, you sometimes don't have that blood family anymore, uh, which is really unfortunate and sucks. So, and then you have this whole idea of chosen family and, you know, blood doesn't always make a family always either. So, you know, there, there are some definite, uh, I think there are definitely some, some deep themes going on here uh, within the film itself, you know? And so, Yeah, I just, I particularly like that scene with Megan um, and her parents because it just kind of shows something that is a real thing that people do deal with in this situation. And I think it's done in a way where, um, again, it's not, um, 
it's not making fun of it. I think it takes it in a serious situation. We then see uh, Mary on her bed uh, putting together a sign that says, Silly faggot, dicks are for chicks, which is okay, fine. Um, and she's calling them Morgan Gordons because obviously she knows them. And so saying, you know, well, if you little inverts want to play rough, then I can play rough. And it's fine. And then we see that, like, Mary has brought her her campers to the home of the Morgan Gordons and are just, like, picketing um, with these signs saying Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, uh, which is just, like, so stupid and silly. But, like, in a way, it's it's definitely, like, poking fun at, like, the so, sort of poking fun and satirizing, like, the Westboro Baptist Church and stuff like that and one of the signs says procreate, um, for example. And so just like some of these things, uh, but then even like there's a boy uh, who, or there's a gentleman and young man who bikes up to the, the door, for example, and he was at the cocksucker, however long ago and saw these people, you know? So it's like, you know, this is where Graham like throws something at him. And of course, Mary's just like, good shot, Graham. And, you know, but obviously like, you know, Megan's like, what are you doing? Like, what the hell? And, you know, of course, Graham's just like, well, he was the cocksucker. Like, do you want me to like get caught? Like, what the hell? So the Morgan Gordons come out and they defend their territory uh, and all that. And then all of these, uh, they decided to then just go home, I guess, because uh, they're done picketing now. See, then you have this like fun little uh, scene where they have this like cake and this like punch going on. And they're all just like, <laughs> it's just so silly how it all just like works, I guess. Like, Megan is giving Rock a particular, like, it's like a massage on his shoulders, and, like, Graham is, like, feeding or, like, cleaning off cake from Joel's, like, mouth or whatever, which is just, like, really funny and really silly. We then have this montage of the final kind of exam that they have where they're taking all of their lessons that they learned, and they're you know, making them all, uh, they're kind of putting them all together and stuff of that sort. And each one of these, they also have to write a topic to an essay, which is my route and how it prevented me from heterosexual living. So they have to like take a test pretty much <laughs> anyway. So they are all, you know, brought together outside, um, to just like show like, all right, cool. Like you all have like pretty much like you all have passed except for one of you, um, and we find out that Andre is the one who did not pass. So he now has to like pack his bags up and leave um, without having to, without being able to graduate. And it's funny because like Joel says something about, you know, Andre feels like a certain way about this. And he's just like, you know, okay, well, I guess I'm a sissy. I guess I'm like this. And then Joel is trying to like comfort him um, saying, you know, Hey, you should be proud of who you are. It's fine. But then even like, <laughs> even like Andre's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I, I know I'm fabulous. Like, fine. What the hell? Um, you know, and I don't need somebody to be telling me all this. Like, excuse me. Like the last thing I need from you is some fruit. Who's just proved that he's straight telling me how sexy my ass is pretty much. Like, I know I'm fabulous. And it's just kind of these things of like, you know, realizing that, well, Andre is just telling them like, they're a bunch of liars. Y'all know who you are. Like, and it's sick that you're just going to like pretty much 
do this and you're just going to lie to yourselves. So have fun with that. We then have a scene where Megan and Graham are going off to have uh, just lesbian time, obviously, together, um, as you do. And so this is where, like, you know, I believe this is the scene where you see them just, like, you know, getting all close and together, and it's just, like, very sensual and erotic, um, kind of, sort of. And so then this is where Megan says, like, I don't feel the way that I do with you, you know, the only time I've ever felt that way is, like, when I'm cheerleading, you know, and that's what's really kept me grounded and kept me happy. So you're even seeing, like, that Megan herself has been using this whole thing with cheerleading, because this movie, like, intersp mittenly uses cheerleading kind of uh even though it's called bottom a cheerleader but like but it's showing that like i guess we're unlocking another layer to megan where you know we see that she actually was not as happy as we kind of thought and cheerleading was keeping her happy but she already maybe knew what was going on with it. She just never really wanted to actually say anything about how she's felt about her sexuality and all of that, which, you know, again, it can, again, I think that is some real shit too. Again, I think this movie has a certain level of depth to it sometimes, you know, and, and it has that, I mean, especially because it was written by a lesbian person. Uh, the story was at least, you know, the guy who wrote this, I don't know if he's gay or not, but anyway, but like the story comes from a lesbian, in perspective obviously and it was you know even though it was written by a man the story came from a lesbian so this is very much a lesbian story but it's a, a queer person's story and and being able to understand like you know hey maybe i wasn't always just so happy with this and you know i really love you know i love cheerleading it's kept me happy and everything so you just get like that little bit of a layer which i really like you know and it just shows it just shows that, I guess, which is just really nice. But then we get, um, and then we also get this like really nice song that's playing in the background while they're like making out and kissing and everything. But then we then see the next morning though, everybody is above Megan and they've realized what just has happened because I guess, uh, well, Sinead has ratted her out pretty much to, to everybody. Uh, and in this scene, I think it's funny. I think I mentioned earlier that part of like the MPAA, uh, giving this movie a rating, this ended up getting an R rating, uh, even though Jamie Babbitt was like, what the hell? I didn't want an R rating. I didn't even put anything in the movie to make an R rating. But anyway, so this is the scene where, like, you see Melanie Linsky has her glasses on one scene, and then there's a cut, and then, like, she doesn't have her glasses on, which you just see in this, which I thought was really funny. But you find out that, like, all right, everyone knows that, like, Megan hooked up with Graham, so her and Graham are now in trouble, pretty much. And so now, particularly, they are brought into these different meetings, pretty much, uh, to say, like, hey, you're going to be removed from the program unless you do this, like, final simulated sexual experience, uh, which is, like, the final thing that they have to do before they graduate. And so Megan is given that opportunity to say you can, you'll be removed from the program unless you do this. But even, you know, unless you do this with Rock is what it is. 
And then she's like, I don't think he wants to do that with me. So I, I, I can't really do it, <laughs> which is just like really funny. And this is also where like uh, Rock is being yelled at. He's dancing to a RuPaul song. Um, and like she, Mary's just like, you know, Rock, like, stop it, you know. And then you see um, Graham and her um, dad and stepmom again. You know, they they're given that ultimatum. And what we find out is that Graham is like, I, I can't do this, Megan. Like, I need to stay here, you know. And even though, like, they literally, uh, they just kick Megan out pretty much at that point. Uh, so, yeah. So, Megan can't go back home. She can't go back to True Directions, obviously. Not that she would want to. And Graham is not gone with her, you know. And that, like, really sucks because she thought she would leave with her. And she's not. And again... I only, I give this movie some sort of credit for having funny parts to it, but also going deep with some certain things because this is just showing that like, you know, I mean, granted, Megan is lucky enough to know who the Morgan Gordons are and that she can go to their house as like kind of a halfway house type thing going on. But this is like a real thing that does happen to people that like, You go to conversion therapy, you know, and you think you're healing yourself, you're praying the gay away or whatever it is, and then you come out of it, you just end up hating yourself more and more, uh, and then that can just lead to a whole host of different things, whether it be just like depression, anxiety, uh, severe depression and anxiety, which can then just exacerbate any underlying mental health issues that can then uh, just exacerbate things like drug use and alcoholism, sex addiction, whatever it is, or can also, you know, produce thoughts of ending your life and things like that. So it's just, uh, I don't know. It's just these things where it's like, this is something where, especially when she's kicked out of true direction, she can't go back to her home and she's all in all, uh, kind of homeless for a minute, I guess she doesn't have anywhere to go except for the morning Gordons. Uh, although we don't show her actually like just out on the street, but like, but that's a real thing that does happen to people is that they get kicked out of their house or they get kicked out of wherever the hell they're trying to stay at, um, you know, because they think that they're healing themselves. And and again, you know, it's just pointing out these things that especially when you're queer, you know that either you yourself have dealt with maybe or maybe somebody, you know, has dealt with it or whatever it is. And so, again, it's touching on these themes that are in there. And just how important um, it is to talk about these things as well and to, to show, uh, you know, just what the queer experience can be like for, for those, you know. Um, this is where Megan is asking, like, I think you, you know, I came here to, you know, teach you, you could teach me how to be a lesbian. Like, where do they go? Where do they live? And this is where the Morgan Gordons are like, well, we can't really help you with teaching you how to be a lesbian. Like, there's no one way to be a lesbian. And then we meet Dolph because he's there in his like rainbow suit that he has on. But it's nice because, you know, we see that they finally get to we see that Dolph has been able to like make a little life for himself. And then Megan is you know talking about how like, well, you know, Graham was supposed to leave with me. And he's like, I knew you were with her. I knew it. Um, we then get to the simulated uh, sex experience that they are having. Which is honestly just so funny. I feel like it is just so silly. They all have, like, these, like, nude bodysuits, kind of, sort of. They have these, like, leaves covering their, like, where their 
breasts their dick or vagina is or whatever. Um, so you have that going on, which is just like so fun. And then you have, you still have the simulated sexual experience where each one of these, um, people has to like show like, okay, here's how you have sex with the opposite sex. Uh, but before that we do see the Morgan Gordons, uh, they're like, oh, Hey, like, you know, to celebrate your newfound freedom, you know, they're, you're going to go out to the bar with like Dolph is going to go out with you or whatever. And we see the Morgan Gordons like having a little bit of a fight, but they're like dealing with it very adult like, which is really nice. Um, and it's just really nice to to see that. But we have these like sexual experiences, and we also have like Rock and um, <laughs> Rock and Graham doing theirs. And this is the, uh, the scene where we have uh, Joel is asking about like uh, Miss Brown, Mary, like what about foreplay? And then Mary's just like, you know, foreplay is for sissies, you know, real men get in, get in, unload and pull out, you know, and all this. And then <laughs> Rock is just like, mom, what the hell? Like, ew, gross. You know, we see like Dolph and Megan having their moment together. And pretty much what they're talking about is like, you know, why did she not leave with me? Why did she not go with me? And Dolph says, like, well, maybe she thought she was, you know, making the right decision, you know, to stay, and she's scared, but it's her own wrong decision to make, and you have to be willing to walk away. Um, and then, you know, also, like, Megan's like, well, what about you and Clayton? Like, don't you, you love him, you want him back, don't you? So then they're deciding, like, they're going to make a little plan to get their people that they want. And we come to our final, after all five of the steps of this movie, uh, we have graduation where all the girls are in their pink little outfits that are actually really, really cute. Um, and then we see in the middle of this too, the, so we have Dolph and Megan who get in one of the trucks at the Morgan Gordons and they just like drive over to this graduation that's being set up from these, um, from two directions, obviously. Uh, and they're like staking out, like just to make sure like, okay, we got to do this. And so we see all of these campers. They are all looking all really cute in their little outfits that they have on. And this is like, so Megan comes across Graham. She's all like, you know, I'm here to rescue you. And she's just like, I don't need to be rescued. Like, stop. What are you doing? <laughs> like, I got to go. So then Clayton comes with, uh, you know, Dolph, but then, which is nice, I guess, but then, but then Megan's just like, she wouldn't come with me. She wouldn't do it, you know, but it's just showing that like, she might just have to try it again to do a little something. So all the girls are together and the guys are together doing their little bit of, you know, a, uh, they're doing this, uh, graduation and we see that, uh, Megan is pulling out the big guns because, you know, she doesn't know what else she could do uh, to win Graham back pretty much at this point. So we see that she takes her pom-poms out of the truck that I guess she, like, uh, packed up with. Um, and then she's, like, gotten changed into her outfit for cheerleading, which is nice, while they're all getting their, like, stupid little, like, awards that they have for being straight now. And... You know, Megan's deciding, I guess I have to do what I got to do. You know, Graham said she'd love to see me cheer. I'm going to show her, you know what? You're worth me cheering for. Um, and this is where we get, you know, the wonderful one, two, three, four. I won't take no anymore. 
five, six, seven, eight. I want you to be my mate. One, two, three, four. You're the one that I adore. Five, six, seven, eight. Don't run from me because this is fate. And you see that, like, they smile at one another. And then, of course, like, Mary's just like, okay, you gotta leave. Go, go. Um, and so, like, you know, Megan's all like, all right, like, come on, let's go, let's go. But then you see that Graham, because she has been, you know, wooed by the way of Megan, um, she runs after her because she really is in love with her. And it's all very nice and pretty. Um, and they are kissing in the back of this truck that they all that they drive away in pretty much and we have that we have that song that was playing during their makeout session and then also earlier in the movie too it's the are you still breathing it's the breathe into my hand song which is just like really pretty um, I don't know if it's on the soundtrack, unfortunately. We then have reached the end of the movie, but it's not quite the end of the movie because then we see that it appears that the Bloomfields are new members of the Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, also known as P-Flag. Um, and so Peter Bloomfield is able to say, you know, hi, my name is Peter, and my daughter is a ho- ho- homosexual. And then Ming Sol, uh Nancy Bloomfield, is just, like, embarrassed, but she's just like, okay, I guess I'm here. And then we uh, have finally actually come to a close on our film. And so then that is the end of But I Am a Cheerleader. So in regards to what I feel about this movie, I would probably give it like a three and a half out of five or something. I uh, personally really do enjoy it. I love having any kind of queer cinema out there. I think it's really important to be able to tell these stories and especially have these movies that are kind of funny in their own right. And, uh, you know, I think that's what Jamie Babbitt did a really a job of with this is that she was able to take something that is a very serious topic and you know, and get jacked some humor into it, uh, because of just the ridiculousness of something like conversion therapy, even though it's a horrible practice and it doesn't do anything good at all, but poking fun at just the ridiculousness of it all and satirizing it, um, yeah, I, I think it still holds. And I think because it's just so over the top and campy, I think that's also one of the reasons it, it sticks around, um, and I definitely think anybody who hasn't seen it should definitely watch it. In regards to where you can watch it, um, it's on Showtime right now. I think it's on there to like March or something. So you have plenty of time to watch it if you have that subscription. But also it's been on Tubi before. Uh, it makes the rounds on the free services. I think it was even on YouTube with free with ads. So, you know, it's a pretty accessible movie that you can watch where it's not too hard to find. I'd even rent this shit. Like, you know, if you just want to like go, go do that, that's, that's always good. But I think it's a great little addition to the teen movie circuit of the late 90s. Um, And it's a nice story where I like the fact that it kind of carves out this space in the queer cinema space, you know, for, you know, a a good lesbian love story, if you will, you know. And, And it was one of those ones to really do it and really shine in a way. So I would definitely highly recommend it for sure. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. In case you want to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you just want to say, hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram handle is Cult Cinema Circle, and Twitter handle is Cult Cinema Circle. 
On those platforms, I tend to announce the different episodes I'm going to be doing. I'll make little Instagram stories when we have an episode drop and just generally interact with anybody on there that wants to interact with me. You can also follow me on Letterboxd at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On there, I log the movies that I watch and write little reviews about them and just general foolishness over there. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much out there everywhere. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review so we can grow the audience more and also just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 1988's Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bowlerama. When three college guys get caught spying on a sorority ritual, they're forced to accompany the pledges on their next assignment, stealing a trophy from a bowling alley. But the token they pinch has a devilish imp who makes their lives a living hell. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, foreplay is for sissies. Real men go in, unload, and pull out. Such sage wisdom by our own Mary Brown. Take care. Bye.